Hello listeners, just a quick reminder here at the beginning of this episode that Luke's English Podcast is sponsored by italki, the online platform for improving your spoken fluency by having conversations and lessons with qualified English speakers from the comfort of your own home. I'm proud to have italki as my sponsor because I really believe that it's a good service and because doing regular speaking practice is perhaps the best way to make rapid progress in your English. So I think it's perfect for my listeners uh, because you already get plenty of listening practice here with the podcast, but you might really need to activate your English by speaking it. So visit teacherluke.co.uk slash talk to check it out, or just click an italki logo on my website. And remember that italki would like to offer you a free lesson when you make a purchase. So that's just because you're a Lepster. Teacherluke.co.uk slash talk to get started or click that italki logo on my website. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this brand new installment of Luke's English Podcast, a podcast for learners of English. In this episode, my dad is going to tell you some true crime stories from England's history. There are six stories in total, and they all involve curious crimes and their punishments, which can tell you quite a lot about what life was like in England in the mid-19th century. So, some storytelling on the podcast. We've established the value of listening to stories on this podcast before, right? Listening to stories can be a great way to improve your English, especially when they're told in an interesting, clear and spontaneous way. And of course, I'm always happy to get contributions from my dad on this podcast. So, I'm feeling good about this episode. I think this should be a good one. These days, my dad is semi-retired, but he keeps himself busy doing various things, including some volunteer work for an organisation based in the town where my parents live. That's Warwick, uh, in the Midlands, in England, in Britain, in the UK, uh, in Europe at the moment. The organisation is called Unlocking Warwick, and it's a volunteer group based in a restored building in the centre of town. And this building used to be a courthouse, a place where, in the past, people who had been accused of committing crimes were sent to be tried and possibly sentenced to various punishments. And back in the Victorian times, those punishments could be quite harsh, as you'll hear in this episode. The building operated as a courtroom from the early 16th century all the way through to the 1970s when it eventually closed. Then, a few years ago, the building was fully restored to its former glory and is now a cultural centre for the town of Warwick. The volunteer group that my parents belong to, Unlocking Warwick, does various events and activities in this building as a way of helping people to explore the history of the town, which is also the site of one of the UK's best medieval castles, Warwick Castle. So Warwick is a place that's worth visiting if you're a tourist and if you're into English history, and it's only about 30 minutes away from Stratford-upon-Avon, the birthplace of William Shakespeare. So this is a kind of historic area. Um, Last year, you heard me talk to my mum about the Unlocking Warwick project. Do you remember that? Um, That was in the episode called um, A 
a rambling chat with my mum. We talked about various things, including unlocking Warwick, because my mum's involved in that too. And she mentioned the Regency Ballroom in the building, this building I'm talking about. She talks about the Regency Ballroom, which is uh, this room where they organise events like dances with historical themes. And since the building used to be the location of this courtroom, the group also presents dramatic reconstructions of real court cases that actually happened there in the past. Okay, so uh, they present these reconstructions of old court uh, court cases. And these reconstructions are basically like plays based on real records of the court proceedings, which are stored in local archives. And my dad is actually the one who writes these dramas. So he reads the details of these old cases from the archives and picks the ones that sound interesting and then turns them into entertaining plays, which are performed for the public by volunteer actors. And they even get members of the audience to shout things out and generally play along a bit like they would have done during the real trials back in the 19th century. So because he's written these plays, uh, my dad has a few stories at his disposal in his memory. And I thought it might be fun, interesting and good practice for your English to hear him describe these stories in an episode of the podcast. So that's what you're going to get. Six true stories of crimes that actually happened in Warwick, told to you by my dad. And almost all of it is told using past tenses, of course. So straight away, there's some grammar and pronunciation for you to look out for. I'm not going to go into all the details of those narrative past tenses here. Um, But if you would like to listen to episodes of this podcast in which I uh, explain these tenses and give examples of them and generally help you to understand and and use them correctly and pronounce them, then you can check out a few episodes from the archive that deal with those tenses. So you could hear episode number 29, which is called The Mystery Story, Narrative Tenses, or episode number 176, which was called Grammar, Verb Tense Review, or episode number 372, which was called The Importance of Anecdotes in English narrative tenses for anecdotes. So episodes 29, 176 and 372 all dealt with uh, narrative verb tenses. So if you're into the grammar stuff, then check out those episodes if you haven't already done so. Those are all in the episode archive on the website. But right now, let's jump into this conversation that I had with my dad just the other day when my parents were visiting us here in Paris where I live. So now, without any further ado, let's get started. Hello, Dad. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So um, here, you... I, here I am in Paris. Yeah, back again. Back again. It's funny that have a child and suddenly uh... suddenly you get visitors. <laughs> <laughs> yes, including us. Very nice to have you here. You've got you've got some stories to tell us on the podcast today, is that right? Yes, yeah, so I thought I might tell you a little bit about um, stories from Victorian times. This is the period when Queen Victoria was on the throne in England, and um, a long period of time when Britain was, you know, great international power, and uh, Victorian times were quite interesting times. Victorian times, okay. So we're talking about the we're talking about the middle of the nineteenth century, the eighteen you know fifties. 
How do you know these stories from Victorian times? Well, it, it's all to do with the volunteer group that I'm with in the town of Warwick in the middle of England. We have a volunteer group which works with the town council there. Um, and we put on community events and we encourage community activities and celebrate the history of the town because it's a very historic place. Historic Warwick, as they call it. Mm. And um, we've researched, the volunteers researched, some of the court cases that happened in the town hall, which is also the old courthouse, in the past and found some interesting stories. So we've, you know, reenacted them for visitors and local people, uh, you know, just like they, they were played out in reality in Victorian times. So there are records of the cases that were tried in this old court. Where are the records? They're in the county record office, which is in Warwick itself. And it's a huge building. And it's an amazing building. They've got all sorts of records, manuscripts going back a long time. And they have all the local newspapers, which go all the way back to 1800. Uh, It was called the Warwick Advertiser. And they have those newspapers in huge books, every single edition. Really? Yeah. And And you have to, you know, just pick them and go through them very very carefully you have to wear special gloves and and they keep them in a in a kind of vault along with all sorts of other valuable books in the county the warwickshire county record office and that's where uh, we looked to see what happened in the court in the mid uh, 1800s to find some stories and you found some stories and you've turned them into as you said reenactments of the trials for the people who committed these crimes? Because they're crime stories, aren't they? Yes, they are. They're people who were f- hauled before the court, mm-hmm. who were uh, you know, accused of criminal activity of a minor t- type. They, these were not murders or anything like that. They were routine, everyday crimes in the town, a lot of drunkenness. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, the interesting thing is how it, it gave you a portrait of what life was like in the mid-1800s, especially in this year, 1851. So we went back to 1851, almost at random, but also because 1851 was the year of what was called the Great Exhibition in London, celebrating Britain's international power and wealth, its Victorian height of its power. Uh, And uh, the Great Exhibition uh, was a huge event. Uh, It attracted people from all over the world, really. And they built a huge glass building in Hyde Park in order to house all these exhibitions of new science, uh, of uh, new inventions. It was all about looking ahead to the future. And that was the year 1851, whereas back in little Warwick in the middle of England, the picture wasn't quite so brilliant. Uh, It was, you know, before the courts had had new legal reforms enacted. So they're very old-fashioned. And the the courts changed just a few years later, about 1860, I think. um, The whole legal process in England was changed, as this was just before that, when it was still very old-fashioned. So I've never heard these stories before, but you have researched them and you turned them into reenactments. Yes, we made a little drama, a courtroom drama, invited people in. They They were... 
like the audiences that used to go into court anyway, because court was a popular entertainment, Mm -hmm. and people used to go to court in large numbers and kind of cheer and jeer and all that kind of thing. You know, it was quite difficult for the court officials to keep order, because they all had an opinion, the audience, and they wanted to see people, you know, sent down, and and they wanted to see people uh, punished, you know, and all that kind of thing. And there was a lot of noise. So we got the audiences to recreate that noise, and, and you encouraged them to react and it was really great fun but also it was it had a serious intent it, it actually showed people what society was like in the town not all that long ago we're talking 160 years ago mm. you know a few generations but it's not like ancient history it's not like medieval times this was a time when britain was quite sophisticated and had all this trade and wealth and science and invention and all that stuff going mm. on mm. but in a, a typical small town you know, there was a lot of uh, small-time crime for social reasons. Was it a good time to, to be living in Warwick? It all depends whether you were rich or not. I mean, there was a big difference between the people who were well-off. Warwick um, was run for many, many centuries by the, uh, the uh, earls of Warwick who lived in the castle. Warwick has got one of the biggest medieval castles in the whole of Europe. It's a huge castle. And these earls of Warwick ran the town until hmm, about the, uh, the 1500s when the, uh, the guilds, the merchants, kind of took over and, and became a corporation, a bit like we have now. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the rich people and the, and the merchants did fine. But on the edges of town, there were huge uh, kind of poor areas where people were crammed together in terrible conditions, no sanitation. And that was happening even in 1851, mm. that people were dying of disease, typhus, smallpox, in large numbers. Um, and yet uh, the, the upper classes were having lovely time, having elegant balls in the ballroom, and they were going to the races at Warwick, Warwick as a race course. And they were going hunting. Warwickshire was a great hunting county. And it was a very different scene for the the rich and the aristocrats between them and the poor people, who were extremely poor. Mm. So we've got six stories. Yeah, I'll give you six examples, yeah. Shall we hear the titles of the stories in advance? A bit like when you open a book and you see the contents page. Okay. And you can see the titles of the stories. Okay, what have we got? What have we got? So we've got the first story will be the case of the notorious window smasher. Mm Mm-hmm. I've ne- again, I've never heard these stories, so I'm looking forward to hearing them myself. Second one is, what happened to the extremely drunk man? Uh, which is not an autobiographical work, I, I expect. Very funny. Third one is, the story of the poor lunatic woman. Fourth one is, the woman who ran away from the workhouse. Okay. Number five will be, why did Joseph Smith break a lamp in the market square? Good question. A small Small crime, that one, isn't Small it? Small crime, groundbreaking. Uh, and the sixth uh, story will be what happened to the shoemaker's rabbit. Ah, yes, which is the one I'm looking forward to the most. Okay, okay. So, shall we kick off with the case of the notorious window smasher? And what we'll do is we'll find out the details of the case, I suppose. Yes, as as researched by you and as by my colleagues mainly by your colleagues, by me. and uh, they they found these reports of court cases which had been held in the old courthouse in the centre of Warwick. Um, in 1851. Mm-hmm. And uh, this one involved a woman called Elizabeth Brooks. 
And when Elizabeth Brooks was hauled before the magistrates, she was accused of smashing windows in the high street and stealing goods from the windows, smash and grab. Um, But she particularly liked to steal cloth. On this occasion, a roll of expensive French cloth. So she was smashing shop windows and stealing stuff from the shops. And in this particular case, she smashed the shop window of a, like a, a clothing store yeah. or something and took some, a roll of French cloth. Yes, you know, Warwick, Warwick was well known for being a, a centre of the, uh, the cloth industry. And uh, once she appeared in court, um, everybody knew who she was, Elizabeth Brooks. And they all said, oh, it's the notorious window smasher. And that was because the newspapers had given her that title because she kept on smashing windows and trying to steal things and appearing in court all over the place, particularly in Birmingham, not far away. So when Elizabeth Brooks appeared in Warwick, it turned out that one of the local uh, tradesmen tried to bribe her to go away because he knew that she had a habit of smashing windows and trying to grab things. He actually offered her money to go away from Warwick, but she didn't. He then hired a a guard Mm -hmm. to stand outside his shop because he was afraid she was going to smash his windows. And instead of smashing his windows, she went up the street and smashed somebody else's windows <laughs> up in Jury Street and was arrested. And she had big cuts on her arms, apparently, where she'd been reaching in through the broken glass. Oh her arms were all bandaged up. Oof. So she was the notorious window smasher, well known for doing this. And she'd done it before. So what happened to her, Elizabeth Brooks? Well, the chairman of the magistrates was not happy. The chairman of the magistrates. He was called... Like a kind of judge. Yes, yes, like a kind of judge. But, of course, in 1851, he was just the mayor of the town. Right. And, actually, he had no legal training at all. Well, magistrates aren't legal people. They're they're usually just people from the community, right, who hear the, the sort of petty crimes and things. So when we're talking about magistrates here, we're talking about the people who are working like judges um, in these cases in court. Yes, okay. and, and if there was a serious offence, they would then refer it on to a higher court. Where there are judges. Where there are professional there judges, and, and this would, in those days, he was called the Assizes. But this was no, also known as the Petty Sessions. It's an old-fashioned phrase, means minor, minor offences. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the, the chairman of the bench, who was called Charles Redfern, he actually owned a shop. He was a shopkeeper. He owned a shop of trinkets and, and cheap jewellery just, just down the road from where the court was. So he didn't know much about the law. And, and his, he didn't have much guidance in those days about what kind of sentence you gave people for certain things. He seemed to make it up as he went along. Mm. Anyway, he didn't, he didn't like the fact that she'd been doing this before the notorious window smasher and he he, he warned her he, he sent her to the house of correction we'll, we'll tell you about that in a minute uh, um, but he warned her that if she ever appeared in this place again he would have her transported to australia whoa whoa bit of an overreaction isn't well it? that's a very serious sentence because in those days um, people charged with repeat offences or serious offences, if they weren't actually executed, um, they were put on board old ships which were moored in the River Thames. They were called the hulks. And the mm. hulks were, you know, ships that hadn't exactly sunk, but they weren't any good anymore. Horrible old ships. And they were used as prison ships. 
Charles Dickens talks about the prison ships and in they, one of his stories. And they would just sit on the River Thames, would they? Yeah, they, they would were just moored be moored there. there, and people would be held there in chains until they could be transferred to a ship going to Australia, and they'd be taken off on one of these these long journeys to Australia. And according to the records, only about half of the people who were sent to the prison ships survived. I mean, they were full of diseases. If they didn't die on the hulks in the Thames, they died on the journey. And it was being transported to Australia was a very serious thing. Mm-hmm. Unlike today, where many Brits choose to go to Australia because it's a, a, a general improvement <laughs> on lifestyle. It's, well, people can will probably know that Australia uh, had a lot of prisoners sent there and mm-hmm. they rather celebrate the fact that they've made such a success of the, of the country uh, on the back of so many criminals being <laughs> sent there and making a success of the place. Yeah, so... So what happened to... What was her name again? Elizabeth Brooks, the notorious window smasher. Um, We know that she was uh, sentenced basically to uh, a sentence in the House of Correction, but she she would be exported to Australia if she ever offended again. And as far as we can find out, she didn't offend again. She must have been terrified at the prospect. (laughs) Okay, there you go. So that was the case of the notorious window smasher um, sent to a house of... Correction. Correction. A, 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 a jail? A prison? Yes, it's, it is. It was a, a kind of prison. It, in Warwick, there was a jail, uh, you know, a prison with big high walls and everything mm. else. And next to it was the House of Correction. It was a kind of a, a – it's nearly prison. Uh, but they mm. were kept in. Yeah. But the whole idea – and this was a Victorian period idea – was that these people ought to work, put them to work – and uh, then they will lead a better life. They will realise the virtues of working hard as opposed to being useless. Mm-hmm. And and so the House of Correction put them to work. They um, they did some horrible jobs like breaking up um, stones for building material or uh, mashing up bones, which were used for fertiliser. Wow. Or sewing things. And there were also treadmills in the House of Correction. These are big wooden treadmills. And uh, if you were sent there with for, with hard labour, you would have to go into the treadmill and, and walk round the treadmill, sometimes for 10 hours a day. Pushing and the it. treadmill was, was making corn. It was, it was a mill, yeah. milling flour. You'd be pushing a wooden beam around... In a circle, probably, something like that, to turn the workings no, of the mill? it was more of a, a, a big kind of tube. Mm. And, and you stood in a horizontal tube. Yeah. And you stood in the tube and you walked it and it went round and round. And the, and the, uh, the spindle would mm. turn the, the thing that mashed the, the corn or the, the oats into corn. So the House of Correction was a place where you were put to very hard work as a kind of uh, punishment, but also it's supposed to mean that you you learn the value of working. Mm. I wonder what happened to the notorious window smasher in the end. I wonder. She got rehabilitated. Um, okay, let's have the next story. What happened to the extremely drunk man? Oh, well, this was the, there were a lot of drunk people came before the courts, and this was a man called Richard Savory, who came before the court in 1851, and he was very, very drunk. Uh, the the police officer who brought him in was asked uh, what was wrong with him, and he simply said he was very 
Very drunk, my lord. So uh, Richard Savory must have been completely drunk and incapable. And he was fined seven shillings for being drunk. Seven shillings might be difficult for people to understand. It doesn't matter. These days it's a small amount, but for him it was too much. He didn't have any money. So because he couldn't pay the fine, the chairman of the magistrates decided he would put him in the stocks for six hours. The stocks. Mm -hmm. Now, the stocks was a wooden frame which either held your hands if they were standing up stocks or they held your feet if they were sitting down stocks. And these were sitting down stocks in Warwick. So you sat on an uncomfortable stone bit of stone, yeah. your legs out in front of you, and you were, you were sort of put into this wooden frame mm-hmm. which held your ankles. And you had to sit there for six hours. You kind of locked your ankles locked into in, this piece of wood. In the market square. Okay. And it wasn't so much that it was terribly uncomfortable on your back, which it was. It was just that anybody could um, do things to you. You couldn't stop them. And the little boys used to throw things at you, like fruit, mm-hmm. you know, and they used to tickle their feet, uh, you know, with, with sticks and nettle and everything else and, and smear things on their, them and nothing else and just humiliate them. And the stocks was an exercise in humiliation as well as being very uncomfortable. Um, so that's what happened to Richard Savory, who was very drunk. Sounds like a rather unsavory character. He was very good line, very good line, mm. unsavory character. Okay, so what do you think, Dad? Do you think we should bring back the stocks so that uh, extremely <laughs> drunk individuals, you know, who on a Friday night or something might have got a bit too drunk, do you think they should be put in the stocks? No, I don't. I think I think the, that it was very cruel and humiliating, but uh, and you never knew how far it would go. But uh, it's interesting that in Warwick, one of the last people who was put in the stocks to be humiliated was a banker uh, called Greenaway. And he, um, he owned the bank, which had all, lots of money from people of Warwick, was put in the bank. And he made some risky investments, extended himself, and lost the money. And he was brought up in court for, for fraud and was sentenced to the stocks and then the jail after the stocks. But the stocks, because all these people were so angry that he'd lost their money and their savings. And there's a picture of him in the stocks in in the town hall with having stuff thrown at him, like tomatoes and a dead cat is being thrown at him. Yeah. Really? <laughs> Someone threw a dead so, Yes, that's right. So this is the banker Greenaway. And you say, would you like to bring them back now? Well, I think some of the bankers who have, have, <laughs> have done risky investments these days lost lots of money yeah. and catapulted us in 20, 2007, 2008. They mm. threw the whole of the Western world into um, a, a period of austerity because they'd been recklessly gambling with our money. Yeah. And I think that putting a few of those bankers in the stocks followed by jail, would have been quite a good idea. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. All right, story number three, the story of the poor lunatic woman. A lunatic. This is a sad story. That's what they called her in 1851. Her name was Lysa Walters. Uh And her husband brought her into the court to be committed to the lunatic asylum. What's a lunatic, by the Uh, way? Someone who has lost their mind. They're insane, Mm. mad. Okay. And that's the way they were regarded in those days. They, you know, the idea of mental problems was not uh, understood very, very well. And um, so she was brought forward so that she could be confined to the lunatic asylum. It was called the Hunningham House 
lunatic asylum just on the edge of Warwick. Terrifying. And uh, most people who went to the Huntingham House lunatic asylum never came out again. Because, you know, if you're in there and you say, well, I'm sane, they won't believe you because you're mad. So uh, it was quite a difficult problem do, for do, do you think it was very different to a correctional... Uh, what was it called? What was it? A correctional? The, the House of Correction. House, House oh, yes, correction. it was different. I mean, yeah. it was a, more of a mental hospital. I'm sure it wasn't too cruel, but they, it, they were certainly confined. You know, they, mm. they were kept in. And um, I think some of the, the suspicion is, of course, that the husband who wanted her committed to the lunatic asylum may have had other reasons. I mean, who knows? He mm. may have wanted to get rid of her because he had a lover. We don't know. But uh, the poor woman, you know, was was uh, assessed and they decided that she was what was called a pauper lunatic. A pauper, as old-fashioned word, mean, meaning very, very poor. Mm-hmm. You don't have any money. Now, if she'd been a rich person who'd been had mental issues, they would have got private people in to look after her. But there was nobody to look right. after her, so she gets sent off to the so-called lunatic asylum. And she did. The chairman of the magistrates, the guy who owned a little nicky-nacky shop down the road who didn't know anything about anything, <laughs> said, oh, yes, you're a pauper lunatic. Off you go. And she was dragged off to the asylum. Poor woman. So how was? do you know how she was actually brought in? I mean, how... Because her husband had said that she's uncontrollable. She's a danger to other people and a danger to herself. And she needs to be confined. And that was it, as far as we could see. Wow. That's all it took to be sent. All it took was her husband to say, I'm sorry to say, she's got to go to the lunatic asylum. So we don't know why he thought that or how mad she might have been. And we don't know what happened to her in the end. We don't. I bet she didn't come out again. Wow. Uh, I'm I'm quite glad I don't live in the Victorian period. I know. It's harsh, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, fourth story: The woman who ran away from the workhouse. Do you know what a workhouse is? Was? That a house where people work. <laughs> Very good. Well, again, it's all about the poverty. You know, rich people, poor people. A lot of poor people simply couldn't feed themselves. They, they, you know, the for one reason or another. The guy couldn't get a job, or the woman couldn't get a job, or maybe he'd got an injury, maybe he fell ill, and the household didn't have any money at all. Mm-hmm. And again, Charles Dickens wrote about these things. And uh, the workhouse was a place in every town where the poor were taken. It was regarded as charity. Yeah. It was, you know, we're being very nice to you as a community. You know, we have a workhouse. You go to the workhouse, you do some menial work, and you get, you know, a a bed to sleep in, and you get some kind of food. Oliver Twist was in a workhouse. Was Oliver Twist in a workhouse? He was an orphan. An orphanage, was it? It was was probably something Mm, between an orphanage and a workhouse. And um, so this, this woman appeared in court... Um, what was her name? Margaret Brennan, I think. Margaret Brennan. Margaret Brennan. Mm-hmm. And Margaret Brennan appeared before the magistrates, charged with absconding from the workhouse. That means running away. She'd run away from the workhouse, but that wasn't actually a crime in itself. She was charged with stealing the clothes she was wearing at the time. Wow, because they provided her with yes, the clothes. They were workhouse clothes, so, which seems a bit unfair. Um, she ran away from the workhouse, she was apprehended, and she was then charged with stealing the clothes she was wearing. Wow. But they needed something to, they, they to needed, charge her they, with. Yeah. Uh, and um, the, the magistrates were unsympathetic. She said she'd been uh, starving, hungry in the workhouse. You know, she, the, the workhouse had been starving her because she didn't get enough food. 
Mm. And so she'd run away because she was starving. And um, he, they were unsympathetic. They sent her to the House of Correction for three months. Three months? Three months. Then again, she would have got fed in there, but uh, it would have been hard work. So the difference between the House of Correction and a workhouse then? Workhouse is more of a community of people who are too poor to look after themselves. The, the House of Correction was definitely a punishment regime right. of hard work for many hours a day. Wow, so don't run away from the workhouse... Because it'll well, just get worse. And if you get to the House of Correction and, and that's not good, you finish up in prison, which was even tougher regime. Oh, God. Life was hard back then. It was. And there were lots of people in the workhouse. The workhouse in Warwick in 1851 was full. Uh, there, there were a number of records showing that the magistrate wanted to send people back to the workhouse because they often came into court from the workhouse. But they were told there isn't any room. They didn't quite know what to do with people who were destitute. Um, and, you know, there, the, I think the workhouse had to be extended in the mid-1850s because there were so many people who couldn't look after themselves. Do we know anything else about this woman who ran away from the workhouse? Like, do we know why she ran away? She said she was starving hungry. She ran away because she wanted to get, get something to eat. Because they weren't feeding her. She didn't think so. Wow. Maybe they weren't feeding her enough. Maybe she was someone with a big appetite. Well, in Oliver Twist, famously, <laughs> he does ask for more food. He does. He, he has a plate of gruel, which is thin soup. And having you know, had his thin soup, he goes up to the beadle and says, Please, sir, can I have some more? More! Please, sir, I want some more. What? Please, sir... I want some more. More? Yeah. So it may have been something like that. Doesn't Oliver Twist run away from that orphanage or workhouse? I can't remember. Does, does he? Um, he ends I up don't... leaving. And he, he winds up sort of getting caught up with a street gang, doesn't he? A well, gang of, of whether he runs away or not, I can't quite remember, can't but remember uh, he probably details. does. Yeah, it just, just makes me... Uh, want to read more Dickens. Yeah. The, he, he wrote stories about characters in these situations, didn't he? He did. His books are very easy to read as well. So if people like to read a book in English, mm. they, it's a slightly old-fashioned language, but Dickens would be a good place to start. Okay, then. Mum, mum is suggesting that Dickens is not easy. It's not easy then, is it? No, I don't think It's too old-fashioned. We, we can't hear you. Sorry, no, I don't think you could describe Dickens as easy to read. I think he's quite complicated. I mean, a lot of English people find difficulty reading Dickens, and his books are all really long. That's a good point. I mean, they are cracking good stories, is what I was saying. <laughs> They're second. really good stories. Wait a second. Mum, why are you not featured in this podcast? I, I don't know. You did, maybe you didn't ask me. Well, I mean, I could have done, but I mean, the, I thought, well, I'll just let Dad tell these stories yeah. because if if you if there's more than one person, um, yes, well, we, he, he's, we, we, we it, won't get a word in edgeways. Exactly. Well, it's it's his podcast because he knows all about these stories in Warwick. He knows much more than I do because he was involved in the um, you know writing the dramas and things, and so he knows the stories which did, I don't. Did you see the the actual dramas? Oh yes, yeah, and I took part in one or two of them. Yeah. In a very minor role. What did no, you do? they were very good. What did I do? Yeah. <laughs> well, I played the part of a, a court usher, but really it was a sort of, um, uh, I don't know what you describe. I wasn't really playing a part in the play. What I was doing was sitting and 
the way the play was developed was that we wanted a lot of audience participation. So at various points in the play, I had to hold up a board that said shout or boo or say hooray or, you know, make a reaction. And I was... I was encouraging the audience to react at various parts in the play. Okay. But I didn't have anything to say apart from, or do apart from stand up with these placards saying different words on them. Was Dad um, a performer in the play? Um, he was in one of them, weren't you? I can't remember. The, not the first one, po- possibly the second one. Yeah. Okay. Very good, of course. So he wasn't the extremely drunk man. And not on this occasion, no. (laughs) Okay. Um, So we've got two more stories left here, Dad. The next one, the penultimate story here is called Why Did Joseph Smith Break a Lamp in the Market Square? And it just makes me think, why would someone break a lamp in the Market Square? Maybe some young person who might be drunk just chose to break a lamp just as an act of mindless vandalism or something because they had nothing better to do. But... You can tell us, why did Joseph Smith break a lamp in the market square? The the lamps were gas lamps, mm-hmm. and that was quite a new thing, to have gas lamps as opposed to, you know, just candles in, in boxes which burned for a while and then went out in the right. evening. The gas lamps were new, and they were quite expensive. And he deliberately broke uh, two lamps in the market square and came before the magistrates. And again, it was it, it shows you what poverty was like in Warwick for some people mm-hmm. in this quite smart market town with the big castle and all that. There were these people who were so desperate for food that they would, you know, do these things. And that's what he said in court. He hadn't had a meal for a long time. And he knew that if he got hauled off to jail... They'd give him a meal. So he, so he deliberately broke the lamp and waited to be arrested by the constable so that he could get some food. Wow. Desperate. Yeah. Uh, and his, his name, uh, as I recall, was, was Joseph Smith. Yeah. Smith is a very common name. I think it's the most common name in, in the UK. Smith. Even more common than Thompson. Even more common than Thompson, which is quite a you know common Wide, name widespread name uh, widespread thank you and uh, this was uh, smith who'd um s- said he had no food at all for some time and he uh broke the lamp so that he would get a meal well the magistrates weren't terribly sympathetic to that and he was sent to the house of correction with hard labor uh, for three months whoa hard labor for three months that, that means in the treadmill for three months 10 hours a day seven days a week do you think that's a fair uh, punishment i think the poor bloke was desperate and at least they fed him in the house of correction mm. outside any of the institutions he had no way of feeding himself he had no money and no job no prospect of a job it seems and um there was no welfare in those days, of right. course. You know, if you didn't work, you were regarded as being some kind of parasite on society. But who knows? I mean, he, he, you know, probably couldn't get a job. Interesting thing in those times was that, the, that towns like that in England were full of immigrants, people coming into the town. Where would they come from? They were coming from Ireland. Mm-hmm. Ireland had... Uh, a famine, two famines in a row, in the late 
1840s, uh, the potato crop got a, a terrible blight. Like a sort of a, a blight. The potatoes it? came out of the ground as bits of un- inedible mash, mush. Because they were sort of infected with this, yeah. I guess it was, well, I don't know Some what Some kind was. of fungus or something. A fungus, yeah. And, um, of course, it was their staple diet, and, uh, and they didn't have anything to eat. And the Irish potato famine, your listeners may know about it, mm. um, led to hundreds of thousands of people dying of starvation in Ireland. And they were sadly neglected by the, some of the people in England who owned the land. Uh, terrible, really, but a lot of them left. And they, they, they had to leave their homes and find a living somewhere else. A lot of them took the ship across to Liverpool. And from Liverpool, some of them got shipping to America, and a lot of Irish went to America at the time. Yeah. That's why there are so, so, so many Irish communities Indeed. on the East Coast and, and why American culture generally is very influenced by Absolutely. Irish culture. You hear it in the music. Folk you music, do. And, music. you know, the Kennedy's family, JFK, the Kennedy family, Irish antecedents. The mm. Reagans had uh, Irish uh, ancestry. Mm. And a lot of them fanned out into England. They went out from Liverpool into the English Midlands to counties like Leicestershire and Warwickshire. And Warwick had at least 10,000 10, Irish immigrants living in terrible conditions uh, around the edge of the town. Uh, this almost doubled the population of the town. Wow. So uh, when you talk about people having no job, no prospect of earning a living, you can understand why there weren't any jobs for them. Did many of these people end up in the um, Houses of Correction then, do you think? Well, it's why the workhouse was full. The House of Correction was pretty full. Mm. And they were having to build a new jail. So back in the 1850s then, when we had the these uh, places that were stretched to capacity, do we know what changed things? Do we know what, how that was solved, that, that issue? I'm not do, sure do I do. I think next? historians would know. It, it took a little bit of time. But Britain was booming. I mean, it was thriving. It had huge factories. It was, uh, and it needed labour. Yeah. And it was building canals. And it, the Irish were the were the great canal builders. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They were called the navigators or the navvies. And these amazing canal networks were built in quite a short period of time, followed by the railways. The railways were the thing that really uh, employed lots of people. Uh, constructing the railways so they did get their their jobs they did um you know con- contribute to the development of industrial britain final story here in um this uh six-part series this one is called what happened to the shoemaker's rabbit i like rabbits i like stories about rabbits dad i'd like to know what happened to the shoemaker's rabbit so I suppose there's a character in, in this story who makes or made shoes, the shoemaker, and the shoemaker owned a rabbit and something happened to it. This is all true. <laughs> Go on, give us the details. Well, uh, according to the records, in one of these uh, cases in 1851, up before the magistrates came a youngish man called Emmanuel Cox. Emmanuel Cox. Uh-huh. He was charged with stealing a live pet rabbit from his neighbour Edward Green who was a shoemaker mm-hmm. and cooking it in a pot <laughs> as you do 
And um, the police officer who, who uh, was brought to give evidence was called Sergeant Bumford. Now, Bumford... Good name. Uh, his evidence was reported in the newspaper, and Bumford, uh, you know, you can re- hear from his evidence that, you know, he is a typical uh, police constable because it's written that way, and, and he must have said it that way. So, you know, he says, uh, I was summoned uh, by the shoemaker, Edward Green, who reported that the rabbit, his pet rabbit, was in its hutch the night before, and in the morning, it Let- was gone. It was gone. <laughs> Uh, and so he investigated, and he found footprints in the flower bed leading from the wall into the garden, and he got Edward Green to cover them in boards so they would be preserved. And then it says in the evidence, acting on information received. Oh, we, yeah. We don't know what that means. But acting on information, information received, received. I went and apprehended Emmanuel Cox, who lived in Monk Street. Monk Street was one of the poorest streets in Warwick. Right. And accused him, and on the back of the door of his kitchen, there was the skin of a rabbit. Oh. Okay. Dead giveaway. Evidence. So he removed a shoe from uh, the accused, Emmanuel Cox, and took it back to the garden to see whether it fitted the footprints in in the flower bed. And he said, these footprints matched absolutely. So there we were. It looked like a sh- open and shut case. Yeah, because obviously footprints match the shoes. The guy had a rabbit skin on the back of his door in the kitchen. It's it and the, and the shoemaker said, "I recognise that as the skin of my rabbit. I recognise it from a mark on its nose." Okay, so it, it, it looked like he'd obviously stolen the rabbit, oh. cooked it in the pot, left the skin on the back of the door. But he said, "No, no, I've I've had that rabbit since before Christmas." Well before it was, sto- it was stolen. I had it two weeks before Christmas, and I've got witnesses to prove it. And a woman jumped up from the audience and said, I can testify that he had that rabbit at least two weeks before it was supposed to have gone missing. I've seen him with that rabbit. He offered it for sale to so-and-so and all that. They spoke in Cockney accents then? Yes, did they, they did. No, this was, this was, this was uh, a Warwickshire accent, actually, <laughs> right. Luke. Oh, really? And, and, yes, and... Uh, <laughs> She turned out to be called Alice, and and she lived with him, so her evidence was thought to be slightly dodgy. Mm. Um, but he said, "I've got witnesses to prove that I had I had that rabbit well before his neighbour's rabbit went missing." Mm. And so a, a runner, a boy, was sent from the courtroom to summon this witness. I think it was called Blackwell or something. Yeah, go and find him, bring him to the court. Can he testify? So as everyone waited, um, the the uh, the accused was saying he was absolutely innocent. He never would dream of stealing his neighbour's rabbit, you know. And the boy came back, and everyone said, "So what? Where, where's the witness that says he had this rabbit before?" Where's Blackwell? And the boy says, "He wasn't at home, sir." <laughs> so anticlimax. Anticlimax. So all right. So did he? What happened? Did he get convicted of stealing this rabbit or not? Um, let's see. Well, I think in a case like this, where there's probably a crowd of people in the courtroom, you want some, you want closure. I think he was convicted. I reckon he was sent to Australia for the theft of a rabbit. The chairman of the bench said, on the one hand, 
we've got this person suspecting him of stealing the rabbit. On the other hand, he says he never, or he never did. <laughs> yeah. And that he, he's got, you know, people saying that he didn't. You know, he had the, this rabbit in the pot before. He's got witnesses, yeah. And he didn't think the evidence was strong enough, and so he acquitted him. Really? Yeah. He was just sent home. He was case dismissed. And so we will never know whether or not he stole that rabbit and put it in the cooking pot. But I rather suspect he did. But there is uh, the evidence wasn't thought to be strong enough. There's reasonable doubts. Mm. There's too, you know, too much right. doubt there. So what happened to the shoemaker's rabbit remains officially a mystery. Hmm. Okay. Very interesting. I wonder what did happen to that rabbit. Maybe one day when building work is being done in the area, they'll uncover a rabbit skeleton, <laughs> which has been buried in the back garden of someone's house. Yes, I wonder. And we'll know who did it. But the it. interesting thing about all these cases, they're all minor cases, um, but it does open a window on what life was like in the mid-1800s yeah. uh, during a time when... Britain and many other countries in Europe, France certainly, were enjoying a bit of a boom in the Industrial Revolution, but it wasn't equally distributed. There were still a lot of poor people around, particularly in the rural areas. Okay. Well, Dad, thank you very much for telling us six fascinating true stories about crimes that uh, occurred in the Warwick area in the Victorian period. And thank you for returning to the podcast and it's my pleasure, and I hope people haven't been too uninterested in these minor cases, these petty sessions. Let's hope they haven't been too fascinated either. <laughs> let's, let's not hope that reactions have been extreme in any direction. Um, I found them interesting, personally. Uh, which one did I like the most? I think I like the... Uh, the notorious window smasher. Yeah. They're a notorious window Threatened smasher. with deportation to Australia if she ever did it again. It's a crazy woman who kept going up and down the high street, smashing the windows and cutting up her arms. And the, the, the head, um, the, the, the chief magistrate owned a shop in the street. He which did. Which suggests that he might have been a bit biased against her. Do you know if his was one of the shops that uh, had a window smashed? No, it wasn't. She was after cloth and material, and he, he sold uh, little bits of jewellery and nicky-nackies. But it, uh, just a few years after this, big reforms happened in the law, and uh, they stopped deporting people to Australia. They stopped putting people in the stocks in the square, and they gave a code for uh, the magistrates to follow so that there was some consistency across the country on the kind of sentences they gave, the kind of crimes. Mm. Um, but before that, it was all kind of a free-for-all. And, uh, you know, if, if the chairman of the magistrates was in a bad mood, it, it, you know, you might have got sent to Australia, you know. Yeah, okay. All right, fantastic stuff. Now, I think it's time to eat some, uh, some dinner, isn't oh, it? Oh, good. Okay, then. So I hope you enjoyed those stories there told in fairly entertaining style by my dad. What I'd like to do now is summarise those six stories again, just to make sure that you've got the main details. And just by sort of summarising them, that will help to reinforce some of the language that you heard in the conversation. You can find the notes that I'm reading here in this part of the episode, written on the page for this episode on the website. So the first story was the, the case of the notorious window smasher. So notorious is a bit like famous, but for, uh, for sort of uh, negative reasons, infamous or notorious. So this is the 
a story of the of a woman who would go up and down the high street in Warwick and also in Birmingham, smashing shop windows and cutting up her arms in the process and stealing goods like things in those shops, goods, including a roll of top quality French material, cloth. And she was caught and sentenced to time in the House of Correction where she probably had to do hard labour all day, including walking in the treadmill, as you heard my dad uh, describing it. Uh, That's a kind of human-powered machine for grinding corn or wheat, which I suppose was later used to make bread. Imagine being like a hamster in a wheel all day long, going round and round and round. It would be a bit like going to the gym, uh, but uh, doing it for about 10 hours or more, all day and i'm sure that the conditions were very very dusty and awful and horrible the victorians uh you know the people of the victorian era being sort of puritanical and protestant had a very strong work ethic and they believed that hard work was the remedy for people's problems and you can see how this went together with a certain industriousness that marked that period of british history but it must have been pretty cruel and tough uh, in those days so that was the uh the, the case of the notorious window smasher she ended up doing uh, hard labor in the house of correction then we had uh, the second story which was what happened to the extremely drunk man apparently he was brought into the court by a policeman simply for being very very drunk And the punishment was that he was sentenced to six hours in the stocks. So the stocks being these sort of like kind of wooden things that um, would be attached to your legs or to your arms, which basically meant that you couldn't move. You were just kind of stuck in these stocks, uh, in this case, for six hours. Um, And um, that was a very humiliating punishment. You'd just be in the centre of town, in the stocks, and then people would just be like looking at you, pointing at you, and they could do anything they want to you. So they'd throw you know, bits of old fruit and vegetables at you. And apparently, in one case, a, a dead cat. Imagine that. Imagine being found very, very drunk and then forced to sit in the stocks uh, all day and someone throwing a dead cat at you. Unbelievable. Um, the third story was called The Story of the Poor Lunatic Woman. So some poor woman who um, was mentally ill, apparently. And uh, this poor woman, um, so her husband, in fact, took her to the authorities, claiming that she was hysterical and completely impossible to live with, like out of control. And she was promptly taken to the local lunatic asylum, where she probably spent the rest of her life. But was she really mad? Or did her husband just want to get rid of her? I wonder. Um, I don't. I. I don't think they really understood, you know, how to deal with mental illness in those days. So anyway, the 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 from our point of view these days in our you know current society, looking back at things like lunatic asylums, houses of correction, workhouses, and prisons, they they all might seem, you know, all of them horrible places to end up. Um, Anyway, the fourth story was the woman who ran away from the workhouse. Uh, 
So as I was saying, there there were different places that you could end up if you were found guilty of a crime or simply just didn't have the means to look after yourself or you were sort of considered, uh, you know, a lunatic, crazy person or in the in I guess in the language of today, someone who was mentally ill. Uh, the worst place that you could end up was apparently Australia which was probably a very, very tough place to try and survive back in those days. It was actually a prison colony uh, for prisoners uh, from from England. And the long boat journey to Australia would probably kill you anyway. Uh, but anyway, there was Australia. Then there's prison, or there was prison. And I'm sure that 19th century prisons um, would have been full of disease and all kinds of hideous misery. Uh, you heard about the hulks, those broken old ships that were moored on the River Thames in London, which worked as kind of temporary prisons. I expect the ones on land, you know, the normal prisons, weren't much better. Probably also full of disease and rats and, and, and you know, terrible conditions. And then there were the houses of correction, which were essentially prisons where you did hard labour all day, like, you know, uh, walking the treadmill. And there were also workhouses, which were not exactly prisons, but instead they were places that would house people who had no money, basically. So they'd give them accommodation and food in return for work. And honestly, I think places like this actually still exist in many parts of the world, not in the UK, as far as I know, but in in other parts of the world. And it's actually really sad and terrible that these places still exist, you know, workhouses, especially when we realise that some of the products that we actually consume and buy ourselves now might actually have been made in places like these. These days we call them sweatshops, uh, places where people work long hours in awful conditions. So anyway, the woman in this story from 1851 ran away from her workhouse because, as she claimed, they weren't feeding her. I expect that could be true. I think that the food given to people in workhouses was often just very weak and watery soup called gruel, which probably contained almost no nutritional value. And I wouldn't be surprised if some people were denied food as maybe punishment in a workhouse or something. There was so much cruelty in those days. So I'm not so I wouldn't be surprised if she had been denied food for some reason. And so this woman ran away and was caught. But she hadn't really committed a crime, had she? I don't think a workhouse was a compulsory place to stay. A workhouse wasn't jail. So anyway, she she ran away of her own free will, but they caught her and charged her with theft of the clothes that she was wearing. I expect the clothes were provided for her by the workhouse, so that's how they got her. And it makes me wonder if there wasn't some kind of personal revenge or some sort of personal vendetta against this woman or some kind of conspiracy against her. Uh, why did she run away? Why was she not being fed? Uh, why did they see fit to catch her and kind of charge her with this crime rather than just taking her back to the workhouse? Anyway, she was caught. She was charged uh, with theft of the clothes that she was wearing. And her sentence was three months hard labour in the House of Correction. So from the workhouse to the House of Correction, it's not exactly a a step up in lifestyle. Um, I'm sure that some people profited from all this free labour. Kind of makes me wonder what was really going on. All of this free labour. I mean, the system of punishment was also rather convenient for like the, you know, the industrialists who owned 
these uh, production houses, these workhouses or, or these houses of correction. Um, the fifth story was called Why Did Joseph Smith Break a Lamp in the Market Square? And this was a, a sad story. Apparently he broke the lamp just to get arrested so he could be put in the house of correction because he had no money and no food. So he did it just to get fed and housed, even if it meant having to do menial work. It sounds like he was pretty desperate and maybe he had no choice because back in those days there was no such thing as welfare or social security. The welfare state didn't actually arrive for nearly another 100 years. Uh, The welfare state kind of was set up after World War II in the UK. Uh, So before the welfare state uh, was set up and before the state looked after people in any kind of organised way, people apparently were desperate and they had to resort to even committing petty crimes so that they could be locked up but fed. Uh, The sixth... The sixth... It's quite difficult to say. Can you say that? The sixth story was called What Happened to the Shoemaker's Rabbit? And so this rabbit was stolen... And footprints were found in the garden of the house where the theft happened. And a man named Emmanuel Cox was charged with the theft. And he was accused of stealing the rabbit and cooking it in a pot. The police officer that arrested Cox, I think his name was, what, Constable Bumford or something. Kind of a fairly comical name. Constable Bumford of the uh, Warwick Constabulary. He arrested Cox and he's, the, the, the constable seems to have been tipped off by someone because the constable mentioned information received. So what's information received? So apparently he, inf- he received some information. So did someone tip him off about Emmanuel Cox? Was someone trying to set Cox up? Was, he trying to, was someone trying to frame Emmanuel Cox? Or did they have genuine information about Cox? In any case, when Cox's place was searched, they found a rabbit skin hanging up in the kitchen, which the shoemaker identified. Uh, It looked like an open and shut case. The evidence was a dead giveaway, apparently. But during the trial, a woman in the audience defended Cox. And actually, she turned out to be someone that he lived with, maybe his girlfriend or something. So she probably wasn't a great witness. A reliable witness and it was claimed that there was a, a witness who could testify to cox's innocence but he couldn't be fa- he couldn't be found so in the end cox was just acquitted the magistrate just let him go without a charge because he said that the evidence was not sufficient so i wonder what the punishment would have been for stealing and eating a pet rabbit i will hazard a wild guess at three months in a correctional house because it seems that doing pretty much anything would land you in a correctional house for three months if uh, you were a petty criminal and you lived in Warwick. So, there you have it. The case of the Shoemaker's Rabbit and five other stories. I hope you enjoyed that and that you learnt some English or at least you had some nice and nourishing listening practice. Yum, yum, yum. Um, You can find notes and some uh, transcriptions on the page for this episode on the website where you can see some of the words and phrases used in this episode. Don't forget to download the Luke's English podcast app for your smartphone. It's free. It's available for uh, iPhones and Android phones and I think Windows phones and uh, Kindle devices as well. So the Luke's English podcast app, that's where you'll find the entire episode archive on your phone. 
And there are various app-only episodes and other bonuses for you to check out. Also, join the mailing list on the website to get an email whenever I upload new content. That email will contain a link that will take you straight to the page for that content. Uh, and that's usually a, a new episode of the podcast. And sometimes it's it means it's just some, some website-only content. Like, for example, whenever I'm interviewed on someone else's podcast and I just post the the audio there or if i want to write to you about something in particular that i think might interest you join the mailing list and you'll get uh, notifications of that kind of stuff uh, sometimes also episodes arrive on the website a day earlier than everywhere else so sometimes i publish the episodes like one day early on the website and then they arrive everywhere else uh, you know, a day later. So being an email subscriber might be the fastest way to find out about new episodes when they are released. So be an email subscriber, be an app user. And if you enjoy my episodes and you find them useful, and if the spirit moves you, please do recommend this podcast to at least one person who you think might like it. Uh, you could also leave um, Luke's English podcast a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store. And you could consider sending a donation to the podcast to help with running costs and things, uh, or perhaps just as a sincere way to say thanks for my work. Uh, in any case, I would just like to say thank you very much for listening. And I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. But for now, goodbye. Bye. 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 Bye.